Good morning. Everybody awake? I mean, the response is like, uh, you know, daylight's, uh, what is it? Yeah, daylight savings time just started. Uh, grab your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to look at the gospel this morning. Easter's a big day. This is the day in history where God the Son rose from the grave in victory over sin and death. And, um, and, and that's good news, man. That is such good news. And so we need to look at the gospel this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory that or what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And he was seen of Cephas, and then of the twelve, and after that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But the grace, right, verse 10, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it be I or they, so we preach, and so ye have believed. Father, I pray that if there are any here today that have not believed on the, on the gospel that was preached to them, or maybe it's never been preached to them, Lord, I pray that today would be the day of belief where faith would be activated and Lord, they would access your grace because they trust in Christ, they believe on Christ as their sin bearer, the finished work of Calvary as being sufficient and the resurrected Savior that they might call on him to receive mercy and grace and salvation. Lord, those of us who are saved, Lord, I pray that today we would see that it's up to us, we have to we have to be preachers of the gospel. We have to preach the, 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 the truth, the, the power, the proofs of the resurrection of Christ. And so, Lord, help us all today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1, he's saying to the church, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. I've already preached this message to you. And so that's the first point that we need to get this morning, is preachers of the gospel are desperately needed. Why? Because people need to know the gospel. People need the Lord. Uh, man was not made to be outside of fellowship with his creator, and yet, man, between the world, our flesh, and the lying spirits, right, the lying devil, people get confused, and, and they don't know how to have a right relationship with God, and they think it's through their works or through their righteousness that, that now God will owe them a place in his kingdom. 
And there's none righteous. They, they err not knowing the scriptures. There's none that please and are approved of God. And so we need a good, I mean, we need, we need a good story. We need a good news message to, to tell the lost that the way has been paved. God has made a way for them. And it's through the finished work of Christ at Calvary. So people need the Lord. We just gotta simply tell them the gospel. Well, how do we do that? How do, I, how do I effectively tell the good news of Jesus Christ to someone who desperately needs it? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter two, we, we already got the answer. Verse one says, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I, de- I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Nobody should ever come to the place where they come to Christ because this person was so persuasive, they were so elegant in their presentation. If you're preaching the gospel, if you're telling the good news of Christ's death, right, sacrifice over our sin, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and the whole time your knees were knocking and your voice was quivering and you're stumbling all over, I mean, you're stumbling all over yourself like, oh, let, hold on, that didn't sound right. Let me go back, let me, let me, let me, let me make sure that this makes sense to you. And, and you're, just, you're just in fear and trembling, getting it out there. Can you stay full of faith that God's gonna use that? According to his word, God's gonna use that in the life of the unbeliever? Paul said, that was my strategy, that was my plan in getting the gospel to you. Some of you, are, you're like, I, I'm not cut out to preach the gospel, I just, I clutch, I get so nervous whenever I start. Oh, no, no, you're highly qualified, right? What, your life's verse, your theme verse, 1 Corinthians 2, verses one through five because the faith of people shouldn't stand in your presentation of it, of the gospel, it should stand in the reality of the gospel. Now some will reject, some will believe, like the, Philipp, you know, the Philippian jailer uh, and his house, they believed, right? Uh, this Philippian jailer, he's got the responsibility to keep Paul and Silas in bonds. And you guys know the story, at midnight they're singing, praising, God's, God just sets everybody free and, and they all stay. It saved, the, it, it saved the Philippian jailer's life. He didn't lose any of his prisoners and so he brings out Paul and Silas, Acts chapter 16 and verse 30 and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. So dad, you get saved, that doesn't mean your wife and kids are saved. They have to also believe on the gospel of Jesus Christ. But let me tell you something, you make it easier for them to do so because you're the head of that household. And took them, right, verse 33, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and he, the Philippian jailer, and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. Uh, Some will reject, but some will believe. At the end of the day, 
our job as preachers of the gospel is to just tell the truth. Let's trust the Lord to just say what the Bible says in the power of his Holy Spirit, and then let's leave the, re- let's leave the results up to God. Uh, now it's between the sinner and the creator, what this individual will do with the truth of the gospel. Romans chapter one tells us then our responsibility. And Paul describes it this way in verse 15. He says, as much as is in me, right, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it, not my ability to proclaim it, not, not, my, not my proficiency in apologetics, no, the gospel, it, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So here's the key, just tell the old story. Tell the good news of Jesus' death for our sin, his burial in the grave, his resurrection on Easter Sunday to be our Lord and Savior. That story isn't just a truth, it's the truth. And it has the, the, but when somebody believes on that, The Holy Spirit takes the scalpel of God's word and he separates them from their body of the sins of the flesh. They become a new creature in Christ. It is the the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Just tell that story. Give the good news. Now, here's the other question. Do you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you believed on it? You must receive it. Jesus said in John chapter 14, And verse six, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So we must, and this is the second point, right? We must receive the gospel. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. Right, which ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. The only way this works is you have to actually, in, re- in recognition and repentance over sin, your sin that separates you from God, you have to believe on, you have to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Uh, as a small child, I wrestled with that for a number of years. Once I realized that not everybody is going to heaven, uh, I, I, my view at that time was that my parents were saved. My, actually, my mom was. My father hadn't come to Christ yet. Um, but here I am in second grade, I wanna go to heaven, and so I prayed a prayer so I could go to heaven. I didn't understand my sin, I didn't understand why Christ needed to die, I just was told if I pray this prayer, I'll go to heaven. And I never believed on the gospel, I was no more saved than this piece of wood right here. All right, I, I, I didn't know, I didn't understand. But it wasn't until my father came to Christ, and that coincided with then the following week, a, revi- a series of meetings in our local church where the, the evangelist preached on hell all week <laughs> and the wages of sin is death and death and hell are cast into a lake of fire. That got my attention and I saw it. I'm a, I'm a sinner. I've been, at 12 years of age, I could see how I had rebelled against my creator and then once my father helped me to understand the sufficiency of the gospel of Christ. Man, I clung to it. I gave my life to Christ. A lot of people will say, have you accepted Jesus into your heart? 
No, it, it doesn't work that way, okay? Uh, God has to accept you. And the only way he will accept a sinner, the only way he will accept them is if their sins have been washed away by the shed blood of Christ at Calvary. Have you surrendered your life to Christ? Have you, in repentance of sin, called on the Lord? And yes, there's a sense in which you accept Christ at the moment of salvation, but really that is the way for God the Father to accept you. How can we be rightly reconciled back into relationship with God as our Father? It's only through the finished work of Christ at Calvary. You have to believe on God's plan, God's solution, not your own. Well, I'll be good enough, I'll be smart enough. I won't do enough damage that it'll matter. And we think it's by the works of righteousness that we've done that God will somehow approve, accept and approve us. No, there is none righteous, no, not one. So receiving the gospel, that's everything. That changes your life. And then notice, it's the gospel wherein we stand. This is now your standing before God. The only way we stand before God is in the person of Christ. And that access is gained only through the believing on, the receiving of the gospel in our heart and life. Check out Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. When you believe on the gospel of Jesus Christ, that becomes the way of access to stand before God himself, and it's all by the grace of God. And so that's why he goes on to say, Look at verse two again, 1 Corinthians 15, verse two. By which also ye are saved, it's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. Belief in the gospel is not in vain. It's not for nothing. It's not a useless endeavor. It's not an empty faith. It's the way of salvation. You know, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we're saved by God's grace through what? Through faith, through faith in what? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Someone had to, I mean, whether they gave you a tract, whether they gave you a Bible and told you where to read in it, somebody in some way had to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had to communicate that data set to you so that you could see it and believe on it and receive it for yourself. It's the way of salvation. And then this is where we stand. We live in that salvation. Check out 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. By the which, right, um, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 says it's, it's, it's the gospel that we receive, it's the gospel that we stand in, it's the gospel by which also we're saved, okay? That salvation has three parts. Uh, this term in 1 Corinthians 15 is in the present tense. Well, there are three tenses to your salvation. Your salvation isn't just an event in your past, but an ongoing process. So here it is, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 10. Jesus delivered us, right? Who hath delivered us from so great a death? Well, that took place in my life when I was 12. I believed on the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was delivered from the wages, the penalty of sin, and the pronouncement of death, separation from God for eternity, 
that pronouncement of death over my life. I got saved and doth deliver, 2 Corinthians 1.10 says. So he delivered us from great death, uh, a great death. He's delivering us. Okay, that process of salvation works itself out in the life of the believer. We call this sanctification. It's this process where the whole of who you are, the whole of your life is constantly being set apart to God and God alone. He is conforming you to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're growing, you're maturing spiritually. And then notice how the verse ends, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Uh, Right now, best case scenario, I'm just two thirds saved. I'm born again, I'm a new creature in Christ and I'm growing in Christ, but one day I'll be like him and my vile body will be fashioned like unto his glorious body. Uh, Paul, later on in this chapter, tells the Corinthian church in a moment, right, in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, my corruptible body puts on incorruption, my my mortal body puts on immortality. All of this takes place when Christ himself comes for us, the church. When he comes for me, he will finish what he started in me. What began in my heart and life at age 12, what is growing and developing as I learn to walk with Christ will be ultimately realized when Christ comes for his church. Now notice the warning here in 1 Corinthians 15. You have the capacity to believe in vain. To believe in vain. Okay, there's two levels or two aspects to this. Okay, first, to believe in vain is to believe the facts of the word of God but not surrender to the word of God, to believe what the word of God says, but not accept it for yourself, not submit to the word of God over your life. Jesus gives a parable. It's the parable of the sower and the seed, and and he gives the explanation for this story. And so we'll just read that. The, The seed is the word of God, and obviously the field is the world. Those that Verse 12 says, those by the wayside are they that hear, and then cometh the devil and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Uh, They believe, but then they come up with something that keeps them from believing on the seed of God's word. They on the rock are they which when they hear and receive the word with joy, these have no root which for a while believe and in the time of temptation fall away. So they have a surface acceptance of the truth and they're not really, they they don't really allow it uh, into the core of who they are. It it doesn't actually penetrate their heart and change their life. And so, you know, they fall away. They went out from us because they were not ever really part of us. Verse 14, they that, are, they, that, uh, they, that, uh, they that which fell among the thorns are they which, when they have heard, go forth and are choked with the cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with, with patience. Now here the Corinthian church had received the word. They believed the gospel and they've trusted in Christ. They're saved from their sin. And now they're standing on that word as the assurance of their salvation. Somebody else hears the gospel of Jesus Christ and they accept it as truth, but they never surrender to that truth. They never in repentance over their own sin 
seize on the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ as God's solution for their sin problem. They never in repentance of sin cry out for forgiveness, mercy, salvation. They never receive Christ into their heart and life. They believe the truth, but it's for nothing. To believe in vain, I mean, the devils believe and tremble. You've got devils who absolutely believe I mean, they believe everything in the Bible. They know the Bible is truth. They believe the terms of the gospel. They believe it all. They're just not surrendered to any of it. They've never come to the place where they have submitted their lives to Christ. They're in active rebellion against him. Now, there's another aspect to believing in vain. To believe in vain is to actually believe, but then there's no fruit to perfection. Right, there's no change, there's no power for living life. They're not able to stand in gospel truth. Here, the Corinthian church, Paul is saying, your life has been changed. I mean, they went from being common idolaters, worshiping whatever God they could get a hold of, to being now the living sons and daughters of God. Their faith had transformed their lives, and they're still standing in that faith. You know, they're not like a lot of people today call themselves Christians. But they don't live Christ. They go, I mean, daily, practically, what does their Christian life look like? Oh yeah, a way that's right in their own eyes. It doesn't matter, there's no consideration of what the word of God says or declares over their life. I'm just gonna do what I think is right. I'm gonna do what's best for me. No, these guys weren't just saved, right? They didn't just get fire insurance so they didn't have a place in hell. No, you know, they. Well, this happens all the time. People profess Christ and then they just live for themselves. No, their lives were transformed. The fact that they were still standing was proof that their faith was genuine and not empty. They did not believe in vain. And all because Paul came and preached the gospel. Growing Christian, between your lost flesh, the way of this lost world, and the devils who are the enemies of God, okay, you're gonna get reasons and excuses for why you shouldn't live Christ today, why you should go away that's right in your own eyes. Do you love God? Do you love him? Are we getting anything done <laughs> at 40th and Walnut? Like anything? Okay. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15. A lot of people say they love, you know, they love, but, but their life doesn't, you know, you can tell your spouse you love them, but if you're sleeping with everyone else, guess what? Say what you want. You don't love your spouse. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. It is possible to believe in vain. Now, they hadn't believed in vain, okay? They would have believed in vain if Christ's corp right, if his corpse was still in the grave, right, believing in vain would be the case if the resurrection of Christ were not true. A dead savior cannot save anybody, and this is Paul's point here in chapter 15. Let me give you some homework. Read the whole of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It is one of the most mind-blowing passages in scripture. I mean, you get insight into the nature of celestial beings all the way to the resurrection, the rapture of the church. It's an incredible passage. And Paul's point here in chapter 15 is that the key to the gospel message lies in the fact 
of Christ's resurrection. See, the events that the gospel describes are factual. That's your next set of blanks. We see this in verses three and four. He says, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. I didn't give you a fairy tale. I didn't give you just some story. No, I got the facts and I gave those to you. And so he defines the gospel. Here it is in verses three and four. First, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So Christ wasn't just executed as a rebel by the Roman government. No, he didn't just die, Christ died for our sins. My sin, my rebellion against, Christ, against God is what forced Christ on the cross of Calvary. Christ, God, wasn't willing that I would perish, and so he, for the joy that was set before him, he carried my sin to the cross of Calvary, and he suffered the Father's wrath, God's just and righteous wrath over my sin. He took it all so that I wouldn't have to. Galatians chapter one, verse four says that Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world, and that's all, verse four says, according to the will of God and our Father. In Titus chapter two and verse 14, Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Christ's death for our sins, Christ's death met the requirement of God's law which clearly condemned us. That's your next set of blanks. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter five. Keep a finger here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But just go back a little bit to Romans 5 and verse 8. We'll pick it up in verse 8. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him, through Jesus for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement. Wherefore, as by one man's sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned, because we're all children of Adam, because we're all sinners, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. He's, Adam's a picture or a type of the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But not as the offense so also is the free gift. For through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God, and by the, gra by the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift, for the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For by one man's offense, death reigned by one. Much more they which receive abundant grace of the gift of the righteousness shall reign in the life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, 
Even so, by the righteousnesses, or by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall, be, shall many be made righteous. So in Adam all die. In Adam, I mean Adam rebelled against God. Adam and Eve were removed from the Garden of Eden over their sin. They have a baby and surprise, surprise, he's a sinner. And so much a sinner, he murders his little brother. They keep, Adam and Eve keep having babies and those babies have babies and I mean, and then they just kept, humanity kept propagating and now here we are. We're all descendants of Adam and in Adam we have his sin nature. So God had to justify us in his sight. And Romans chapter five says the only way that that can take place is through the shedding of blood. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. So we're justified before God through the shed blood of Christ. Why? It was shed on our behalf. Now, the cross of Calvary washes my sin away. I stand now in the righteousness of Christ. This is how justification works, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him, God reckoned him. Jesus wasn't a sinner but he was reckoned your sin and mine at the cross of Calvary. So he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be reckoned, we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so now, whenever God looks at me, he doesn't say, you know, man, I, I, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Every time I turn around, I'm doing something wrong, okay? Thank God for the shed blood of Jesus, because I'm a sinner, but I'm a sinner saved by his grace. Okay, so thank God for that finished work at Calvary because that settled the sin problem once and for all. And so now when God sees me, he doesn't look at me in terms of my righteousnesses, which are his filthy rags. No, he looks at me through the lens of Christ's righteousness. I made the righteousness of God himself in him. What an incredible trade. And all of that took place. That had to happen because Christ had to die for our sins according to the scriptures. The Bible said it must be so. I'll just give you a couple of cross-references. There are many. Isaiah 53, he was, bru- he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He died for our sins. Check out Psalm 22. Psalms 22 is an exact description of Christ, I mean Christ's death, and, and you see it played out exactly as the scripture declared in all four gospels. And I give you the cross-references there in your notes, right? You've got the chapter for each one. Psalm 22:13, they gaped upon me with their mouths as ravening and a roaring, as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a posture, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Thou hast brought me into the dust of the earth, for dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell, I may count all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Christ died according to the scriptures. It didn't just happen any old which way. No, it had to go down exactly as the Bible said, right? Prophesied it must go down. 
And then he keeps giving the terms of the gospel. Next, verse four, he says, and that he was buried. So Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. Verse four says that he was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Okay, this is why we all flip out this Sunday every year. Easter Sunday's a big deal because Jesus' corpse was committed to the ground, but death couldn't keep him there, right? Up from the grave he arose. The tomb, this is one of the common things you'll hear Christians say on Easter Sunday. The tomb is empty, right? The grave is empty, or the stone is rolled away. I've been to the tomb in Gethsemane, right, in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's nobody in there. I've, I've literally walked in that. Put it on your bucket list. Come with us to Israel. We'll do that Israel tour, and, and, uh, and you can walk into that tomb. There is no corpse there. Praise the Lord. He rose from the grave. He rose in victory over our sin, death itself, and the grave itself. Ephesians 1.19 talks about the greatness of his power to usward that believe. It's according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him in his own right hand in the heavenly places. See, this is key. The empty tomb emphasizes that, I mean, it, it proves that Jesus' resurrection wasn't just theoretical or just spiritual. No, it was a physical, actual event. All four gospels declared that the body is missing. Did I give you the cross references for that in your notes? Yeah, check it out. Okay, why is that so critical? Why is it so critical that it's a bodily resurrection? They killed his body on the cross of Calvary. They did that. Oh, by the way, your sin did that too. You had a responsibility in that. They buried his body in the grave and that body rose again to eternal life. Why is that such a big deal? Well, because if Jesus is still dead, he can't help you today. Have you ever tried talking to a corpse? If Jesus was still a corpse, Lord Jesus, forgive my sin, come into my heart and life and save me. What's he gonna do if he's a corpse? Absolutely nothing. That's what a, the only thing that a corpse can do is decay. He can't, a, a corpse can't help you. Again, all of this happened according to the scriptures. Jesus taught that he would be killed and raised the third day. Matthew 16, verse 21 says, from that time forth, began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many, thing of, many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Boys, we gotta go to Jerusalem. They're gonna kill me there. But on the third day, I'm back. I'll be back. You know, I mean, just like, <laughs> there it is. Matthew 12, look at verse 38. Then certain of the scribes of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. There shall be no sign given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. That's the New Testament rendering of the name of the Old Testament prophet Jonah. You can read that story in the Old Testament in the book of Jonah. So the sign I'm gonna give you is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. 
The implication is you're not repenting. I'm giving you the terms and you won't, I'm giving you the terms of my kingdom and I'm watching you reject it. And you read the book of Jonah, what happens? Well, three days after Jonah's death, burial, and resurrection, you guys know the story, right? Jonah's running from God. He buys a ticket to get as far away from Nineveh as he can. And on the way, the storm comes up. They're all gonna die. Come to find out Jonah's the reason that God's dealing so hardly with him. They throw him overboard. And a whale, a great fish, right? This whale swallows him whole. And you read the story of Jonah. I mean, three days, three nights in the whale's belly and, he, and, you, and you just read his prayer to God as he's dying, right? He is buried, right? He is dead now to the world. He is buried now in the deep. He is in the grave. And then on the third day, up from the whale, he... Bleh! I mean, the whale barfed him right out on the shore. I mean, let the whole church say, you, yeah, it's just nasty. When you talk about humble ministry, he's just covered in whale vomit. And, and then he just goes into the city of Nineveh, repent, right? And three, I mean, repent. I mean, this destruction. Here's this ghoul saying, repent or die. And they're all like, we repent. <laughs> I don't know what your deal is, but... but Man, God's worth being right with, and so they just surrendered their life to the Lord, and three days after his death, burial, and resurrection, right, what happens on that third day? A good news message, a gospel message goes to Nineveh, and they're saved. Christ died for our sins. He was buried in the grave, and he rose again to eternal life. Why? So that you can be saved. This is key. You just see this all over your Bible. Another big picture. We won't turn there. But Genesis chapter 22, Abraham being called to offer his son Isaac. And for three days on this trip, his son is dead to him. On that third day in Genesis 22, God provides himself a ram, right, a sacrifice. On the third day, Isaac is now alive to him. Hosea chapter six, you see it again, same picture. Come, let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn, and he will heal us. He hath smitten, and he will bind us up. After two days will he revive us. In the, in the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. And those of you that are students in our Bible school, you understand the millennial day, um, the, the millennial day calendar in terms of how God uh, God's prophetic timeline is unfolding, and this is obviously a reference to Israel as a nation. The Messiah has smitten them and torn them. You read about that in Romans chapters nine through 11. Uh, but that only takes place until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Once the, once the harvest of the Gentile nations is finished, the church will be raptured out, and then Israel, through great tribulation, Israel will ultimately be saved and restored. Um, after two days, he will revive us. Well, we are in the second millennium of the church age, and Israel is now a nation. But in the third day, in the millennial reign of Christ, Israel will be fully restored. They will live in his sight. But there's also an application, there's a dual application here in Hosea chapter six. There's an application to the life of the believer. What about us? 
Well, in Romans chapter six, the Bible says that we are risen with Christ. How did that work? I mean, read Romans chapter six sometime. You are crucified with Christ, present tense. You are buried with Christ, present tense. You are risen with Christ, present. How long did it take for you to enter into salvation? After two days, you lived in his sight. Do you see that? I'm losing people now. Whenever, okay, here's how it works. Jesus is the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. He actually exists outside of time and space. Now he enters into it, right? He can live inside of space-time. That's what happened in his earthly ministry, but you remember when Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and Jesus talks to him about um, um, the Son of Man and I mean, he's there talking to Nicodemus, but he describes himself as being in heaven. Well, how does that work? If Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, how is he also in heaven? Because he's God. Let the whole church say, duh. Okay, so, like, that's how he does it. Okay, he exists outside of space-time. He can enter into it, but he is actually the author of space-time. He's not bound to it. And so he is actually the eternal Okay, from the beginning to the end, from the first to the last, Jesus is, he's the I am. He is the self-existent one. Okay, whenever you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible talks about you being baptized, immersed into the person of Christ himself. Spirit, the spiritual part of you is now separate from time, space-time. He that is joined to the Lord is what? One spirit. We are, as believers, we are here physically at 40th and Walnut, but at the exact same time, we're seated together in heavenly places in the person of Christ himself. There's a part of you now, this spiritual part of you that is joined to the Lord, exists outside of space-time. Is everybody with me so far? Okay, so in Romans chapter six, you are now, when you believe on Christ, you're baptized in the person of Christ. Now in God's mind, you are now crucified with Christ, you are buried with Christ, and you are, praise the Lord, risen with Christ to eternal life. Okay, how long did that take? How long did that, smitten and torn over sin, but on the third day, we live in his sight. Do you see that? There is an application, how does it work? Colossians chapter two calls it the operation of God. Colossians 2.10 says we are complete in Christ, we're complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. God, when you believe on the gospel, the gospel is the scalpel that the Holy Spirit takes to separate the spiritual part of you, he joins that to the Lord, from the physical part of you. It just keeps living in condemnation and sin, okay? Here it is, it's this operation of God that puts off the body of the sins of the flesh. How does it work? Verse 12, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him. He forgave that sin debt that was levied against you. That happened at the moment of salvation. That was made possible because on the third day, we live in his sight. 
And then in verses five through 11, 1 Corinthians 15, verses five through 11, we see that Christ, the risen Christ, was seen. And this is very significant. This is key to the power of the gospel. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most provable facts in history. Um, You can check that out. There's more historical record and evidence for the resurrection of Christ than there is for the person of Julius Caesar, okay? It's one of the most provable facts in history. And it's critical in terms of the power of the gospel and the life of the believer. How does this work? Okay, verse five. He was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, then of of the 12. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, and then of all the apostles. So they knew him, right? They knew Jesus. After his resurrection, Jesus' physical body could be touched. John 20, 27, it could be recognized uh, with difficulty, but they did recognize him in John chapter 20 and, and also John chapter 21. They saw his resurrected power. He could come and go through locked doors. You see that again in John chapter 20. They were in relationship with him. They ate, they drank with him, Luke chapter 24. You see it also in Acts chapter one. They spend 40 days with him where he takes them from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament, showing them many infallible proofs. Uh, So he ministered to them for 40 days after his resurrection. Then finally, he reveals himself to Paul in verses eight through 11. Uh, you You can read that story in Acts chapter nine. Here's the deal, everybody, that first, generation's, that first generation of Christians, everybody without exception knew that there was no corpse in Jesus' tomb. They all knew that he rose from the dead. They knew it. So when the persecution came, they persevered. When the persecution came, that was just nothing but a thing, chicken wing. They can handle that, that's no big deal because they already have eternal life. And the proof is in the risen Savior. In Acts chapter eight, you've got Saul, before God saves him, he's wrecking the church, he's committing Christians to, Christ, uh, to prison. Verse four says, therefore they were scattered abroad, uh, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. They just stayed faithful. By Acts chapter 17, they turned the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. How could they do that in the face of constant persecution? Well, they knew that Jesus was alive. They knew that the Lord was risen indeed and that through them, uh, through him, they had eternal life. See, this is key and you gotta get this as we close. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is proven to you. It's proven to you. First of all, Jesus died. He didn't just disappear. The authorities made sure that his death was undeniable. Blood and water came out of his side. The historical record is clear, but they outwitted themselves when they took so many precautions to make sure that Jesus was dead and to ensure that he remained in the grave. Everybody knew that Jesus died. The Roman authorities, they absolutely ensured it, and so now his resurrection's undeniable because he's up walking around. The fact that the rulers were promoting a story that the body was stolen was itself an admission that the, that the tomb was in fact empty. In Matthew 28, you know, when Jesus rose from the grave, that stone rolled away and, and, and as, as Christ resurrects, and I mean, the, the guard that was sent to make sure that body stayed in the grave, they all got knocked out, man. 
So they come and they cop to the truth to the chief priests. And so they gave these soldiers money, Matthew 28, verse 12. They gave large money, big money, unto the soldiers, saying, say ye, his disciples came by night and stole them away while, you, while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Now anybody that was paying attention knew that there was something fishy with their story. It's like, okay, so you fell asleep and the disciples came in, rolled the stone away, took Jesus' body out, and when you woke up, he was gone. That's the story. And where did you get that new chariot with the thoroughbred horses? Where, where did that come, where, how did you afford that on a soldier's salary? Like they know something's wrong. Again, in Philippi, or, uh, the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, when he thought he lost his prisoners, he was getting ready to commit suicide in Acts chapter 16. Paul stops him, so he comes out trembling, so, you know, brings him out trembling. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Why? Because if they'd all ran, and this Philippian jailer would have lost all of his prisoners, they would have tortured that dude stripped him naked, and when they finally ended him, it would be in a fire that was started by his clothes. Uh, you, it would be better to commit suicide than to let Rome get a hold of you. A soldier that does not keep their charge, it's a death sentence. And here's the bottom line. If the rulers could have produced a body of Jesus to shut down this growing church, they would have. All the hype would have ended, but they couldn't produce his body because they couldn't find it. It got up and walked out. And then finally, okay, finally, you know something big happened 2,000 years ago. Today is April 9th. Is today April 9th? Yeah, today is April 9th, 2023. 2023 what? A.D. Everybody's trying to change the terminology now, but that's what it is. It's 2023 A.D., Anno Domini. It's the year of our Lord. Something big happened 2,000 years ago. You tell time by the fact that something big happened 2,000 years ago. You don't get to, every day you look at your calendar, you don't get to ignore the facts. You cannot, you cannot afford to dismiss the claims of the gospel. Philippians chapter two says that all will bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every tongue will confess him as Lord. Even if you go through this life rejecting Christ in hell, you will surrender your life to Christ. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. God loves you. He's not willing that you perish. He loves you so much. I mean, he proved it by falling all over himself. Being reckoned, our lying, our cheating, our lusts, our wickedness. He took it all on himself. He died to keep us out of hell. <laughs> he loves you. Christian, who needs to hear that story? Pray for them, right? Identify them, pray for them, and then go speak the truth and love to them. Tell someone this week that the tomb is empty and why that matters. Invite those that need Christ to the church. They're gonna hear the gospel. Watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of your ministry, 2 Timothy 4, 5. 
I mean, you've only got today to count for Christ. There's a story, I don't know if it's true, um, but it's been around for a very long time. Uh, This story talks about a Baptist missionary on the Amazon River, and he's got a flannel graph ministry. It's the Jesus film on flannel graph, and he's just sharing the gospel uh, with these tribes on the Amazon River. And an old man was watching this gospel presentation, and afterward he comes up to the missionary and says, uh, is this, this is an incredible story, is it true? Is it actually true? And she's, you know, the missionary wife says, of course it's true, it's, it's the word of God. And the old man said, this is the first time in my life that I've ever heard that one must give his life to Jesus to have forgiveness from sin and to have life with God forever. And then he just decided, he said, this story can't be true or else some would have come before now to tell it. I'm an old man. My parents lived their lives and died without ever hearing this message. It can't be true or someone would have come sooner. And she tried to convince, oh, that, that's the failure on our part. You know, we're here now with the truth. And, and she tried to convince him. But he just went back saying, it can't be true. Otherwise, someone would have came and told me. Think about all the people that do not know Christ that God has placed in your life so that you can tell them. Don't you want them to at least trip over you on their way to hell? Don't you want to spend eternity knowing that, that at least you gave them the good news? God loves the world. He so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. God doesn't want anyone. He's not willing that any would perish. And so he has you to tell a good story, to tell good news to a lost world. Father, I come to you today in Jesus' name, and Lord, I'm asking if there's any here that do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of salvation for them. Lord, today they would know that their sin, they would leave today knowing that their sin has been forgiven, that in terms of how you see them, as far as The east is from the west. That's how far their sin is. It's been washed away by the blood of Christ at Calvary. Are there any here today that would say, Pastor, please pray for me. That's me. I I, I know I need Christ. I I need to be saved. Would you pray for me specifically? Is there anybody like that? Let me see your hands. Please pray for me. I need Christ in my life. I need to be born again. I need to be saved. Is there anyone? Let me see your hand. I want to pray for you. Okay. Yep, I see you in the back. Anybody else? Please pray for me. I need, I need Christ in my life. And then to my brothers and sisters, how many would say pray for me? I know exactly who I need to tell good news to this week. I know who they are. Would you pray for me? I need, I need an open door. I need, to, I need to tell them the story. Anybody else? Let me see your hands. Okay. Father, Lord, you see those that know they need Christ in their life. Lord, please, would you pour out your spirit and conviction over sin? Would you help them to see the truth of the gospel? Lord, would you, in in a very real sense, just arrest them? 
uh, Lord, bring them to a place where they have to make a decision over the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that today would be the day of salvation. Today they would know that they're forgiven and that they, haven't, that they have eternal life because Christ is risen indeed. And for my brothers and sisters, Lord, be with our mouth, give us open doors, help us to just simply communicate, not in our ability, help us to just be faithful to the text, help us to communicate the truth of the gospel and the love of Christ, and Lord, please, let it go in the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.